You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the Tutor Radiographer in Medical Imaging at RCH. Abdominal pain is a common complaint for children presenting to both the emergency department and to primary care. And many cases of abdominal pain in children are nonspecific and associated with self-limiting conditions such as viral illnesses or constipation. However, there are many time-critical causes of abdominal pain or psychological factors that we don't really want to miss. And differentiating between them can be a challenging endeavour for the clinician. So therefore, our topic today is going to be about a specific type of abdominal pain called functional abdominal pain. So it's an important and yet often unloved subset of abdominal pain, and what better person to talk about it than Dr. Amanda Stock, who's a paediatrician and consultant in the emergency department at RCH. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for having me, Steve. So let's look at a relatively common situation. So it's 10 o'clock on a Friday night, for example, Mm -hmm. in the paediatric emergency department, and it's absolutely heaving. There's like heaps and heaps of patients around, and it's a challenge to find a free cubicle to see the next patient. So there's a five-year-old child who's been waiting for a long time. I'm talking like three plus hours Mm. to be seen. And so you decide to pick them up and you walk into the cubicle and they look really, really uncomfortable and they're holding their tummy. So can you tell me what you think is going on in Mm. this scenario? Yeah, I think this is, this first thing to say is that this is a really common scenario, Steve. The first thing that I do when I walk into the room is that I notice that the five-year-old is distressed. So she's crying. I also see that the parents look distressed. Mm. So my first aim is to reduce the distress. It's important for people to remember that in children who are kind of, you know, less than 10, sometimes it can be difficult to unpack what is distress and what is pain. Yeah. So we treat for pain. Yeah. So my first priority is to make my patient more comfortable. Yeah. Because I'm assuming that you're going to be getting like a, a history from not only the patient eventually, but mm. also from the parents as well. And, and the parents aren't going to be able to give a, a good valid history if, they, if their distress is heightened anyway, right? Absolutely. So I already have the triage description, which mm. might be, and in this case, the five-year-old, oh, let's give her a name. Let's call her Christina. Mm. She's had abdominal pain for the last 48 hours she's still eating, and I go in with that information. The first thing I really want to do is address the parents and address the child and let them know that I can see she's in pain. Yeah, I'll always use the name of the child and I'll say, Christina, I can see that you're really uncomfortable and I'd like to give you some medicine Mm. to make you more comfortable. That's my job. My job as your doctor, I'm Dr. Amanda, and my job is to make you more comfortable because yeah. I can see that your tummy is hurting you. So I'll talk directly to the child, but I will also then speak to the parent and explain my process. Although having said that, Steve, the parent is listening to what I'm saying to Christina. Yeah, absolutely. It's still good to acknowledge the parent, as you say, though. Mm. And I think like that kind of links back to a previous podcast that you and I actually recorded together mm. on, on that patient-centred care um, situation about actually addressing and, and thanking the, the parents for actually bringing the child yeah. in and things like that as well. Now, I've also heard, though, in, in terms of like addressing the pain itself and giving some pain relief, I've also heard that some clinicians and parents are worried to give the pain relief just in case it kind of masks the cause. Is that true? Absolutely. So a lot of families will not have given 
paracetamol and ibuprofen before the child comes to hospital. They might have done it at home, but they may not have done it before they bring their child to emergency because they don't, in inverted commas, want to mask the symptoms. Yeah, It's becoming less of a thing now, but it used to be taught that you shouldn't give a child opioids because, again, that will make the examination more difficult. And I would say that that is absolutely not true. And to get a meaningful engagement with Christina and with her parents, Mm. she needs to be comfortable. The medication that we give is tailored and aimed at making her comfortable. So often what we find is is that these children may have already had simple analgesia like paracetamol and ibuprofen. If they're in the cubicle and they're screaming and distressed and they're holding their tummy, my job is to make them comfortable. So I will move very quickly to using an opioid and what we will use is um, generally is intranasal fentanyl, which works very quickly. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay, so we've done the pain relief medication. Mm. The child's pain is now under control. Both the patient and the family feel a lot more comfortable, Mm. like the stress is not so high anymore. Mm. So now what's your approach to assessing the child with abdominal pain? I'll go back just a bit of a step. So now that Christina is comfortable, what that then means is that her parents are calmer, I hope. And most parents, once they see that their child is no longer distressed, there's a, ah. Yeah. And they then become receptive to what I'm asking them about. And they also are able then to hear what I've got to say. Yeah. I see clinicians often ask children and parents They're taking a history, they're collecting information, but they're doing it when either a child is crying or the parents are distracted. Yeah. And we're not going to get any meaningful information. Yeah. So now that the parents are receptive and I hope calmer and that Christina's more comfortable, I can then actually find out more about the presentation. And would you say that? As you kind of walk into the room, so you've gone into the room, the patient's Mm. in pain, you've said, okay, I want to get intranasal fentanyl Mm. or whatever, and that you leave the room, you come back, Christina's looking a lot better and stuff like that, and you acknowledge it. You basically say, Christina, you're looking so much better now. You look like you're a lot calmer and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden that's a cue for the parents (sighs) to, yeah, really have that. Yeah. So, yes, thanks for kind of pointing that out. And what I will generally do is I'll signpost my plan. So remembering that, and again, I think we spoke about this in the last podcast, is that you want to make sure that both the child and the parents are as in control as possible and know your plan. I will say, Christina, my job is to make you more comfortable. This is medicine that's going to make you more comfortable. And then to the parents, once Christina is more comfortable, I'm going to come back and find out mm. more about what's been happening so they know that you're not just walking out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good plan, I think, anyway. Mm. And when you're now going to be coming back in mm. the room, you've got everyone's attention, mm. they, they all feel a lot better, what kind of questions are you going to ask the child and the family and how do you involve the child during that time? So I will ask Christina about her pain, basic history taking. I don't ask directly about the pain to begin with. What I'll do is I want to understand how the pain is affecting her function. Unpacking how this pain is affecting her day-to-day function 
is helping me to build my differential diagnosis. Yeah. So I will acknowledge that she's more comfortable and most children are like, ah, as well. Yeah. And then I will start with really simple things. What did you do today? Yeah. Did you go to kinder? Did you go to school, depending on the age? Yeah. What did you have for breakfast? Yeah. Most of the time we're taught in history taking is to go where the money is. So if they've presented with pain, where is the pain? How do you rate the pain? Is the pain moving anywhere? What makes it worse? What makes it better? That's our typical teaching. What I actually want to do is I want to start from the other direction. I want to start from her function and then I'll move to a bit more about the pain. I generally find that if a child is sleeping comfortably and the sleep is not interrupted, that makes me feel less worried that I'm dealing with a serious pathology. And so the way that I ask about sleep is I will say, what time did Christina wake up this morning? And what time did she go to bed? And did she wake up at all overnight? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so now in your head, mm. while you're asking these questions, mm. you're obviously thinking in your head about some differentials. And red flags. And red flags yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. So let's yeah. go through the red flags. Yeah. What are the red flags that you're thinking of to start with? Any parent whose child comes in with abdominal pain, I can guarantee you that 99.9% will be thinking their child might have appendicitis. I always think yes. when my children were younger, yep. my wife and I often thought, Interception straight away, yeah. <laughs> every time. Yes, so and that's because you're a radiographer yeah. and your 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 wife is a pediatrician. But most parents will have some, not all, but most will have some idea of the pathology that they're worried about. And we always have to remember that when a child exhibits pain, of course, a parent's going to be thinking there is something wrong with my child's abdomen, and do they need surgery and do they need treatment? Yeah. So the red flags for me are pain that doesn't get better, so constant pain, pain that is affecting a child's ability to mobilise. Yeah. And I'm always looking at how a child moves, pain that's affecting a child's appetite and chronicity of pain. Yeah. And vomiting. Okay. Yeah, that would be my... um, that they would be my red flags in a child that doesn't look unwell. Right. Obviously, if we're looking at a five-year-old that's got abdominal pain and is on the bed and isn't moving and anytime you go near them, they're, they're wincing and they've got a distended abdomen and they're febrile and tachycardic, mm. clearly we are going to be thinking that they possibly might have a serious pathology. Yeah. These are the red flags in a child that you've given analgesia to and now looks well and bright. Yeah, right. Okay. And so then, so there's your red flags. Mm. And then what about your other kind of causes? Yeah. And because I'm assuming being children that there there's obviously age and sex related yeah, causes as well. Yes. So when I'm thinking about, about abdominal pain, I'm thinking about, so I like this, Amy Gray, one of our educators taught me this for differential diagnosis, which is spit. Yeah. So we're thinking S for serious, P for probable, I for interesting, and T for treatable. Okay. So I'm always thinking about the serious causes. So in a, I guess we're talking about children above 18 months, aren't we? Because if they're less than 18 months, they may not necessarily present with abdominal pain. Right. So I guess we're talking about the toddler age group upwards. Yeah. So in the toddler age group, 18 months to kind of like three, 
I'm thinking, I'm always thinking about appendicitis. That's my number one. Yeah. So I'm always thinking. Just like everyone else is. Just like everyone else. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yes, I'm no different. Yeah. So I'm thinking, does this child have appendicitis? Because appendicitis in preschool age children can be very difficult to diagnose and presents differently because they don't necessarily localize their pain. Right. Thinking about appendicitis, I'm thinking about your concern, intersusception, uh-huh. which is a form of small bowel obstruction. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about in boys, um, testicular torsion. Again, that's more in an adolescent age group. Yeah. And in girls, no matter what age group, I'm thinking of the equivalent, which is ovarian torsion. Right. So they're the surgical causes. Yeah. And then we've got the medical causes. The medical causes, there's a whole list of them. Oh, yeah. You can look them up on the CPGs, but basically it's things like constipation, which is blamed for everything, and we might talk about that, urinary tract infections, lower lobe pneumonia, mesenteric adenitis. Yeah. Yeah. That would probably be my big lot. Yeah, and then kind of just circling back to the history that you're getting, Mm. if you have a patient that cannot speak yet, they don't understand English or they they can't verbalise. Yes. What's your questioning technique, I guess? Yeah. Okay. So if I've got a, yeah, so, so maybe we'll, we'll make this child a two-year-old. If I could convey anything to the listener, I'm watching them, how they move. And we're talking about the younger child, the preschooler. Yeah. Yeah. The child that can't communicate with words. It's all about how they move. Yeah. And often I'm doing that out of the room and because that age group has often got stranger anxiety and they're the patients that as soon as you come near them, they just start crying. Mm. I'm actually spying from outside the room. Yeah, right. Really interesting patient that that displays this so well is there was a nine-monther that I saw with a registrar a couple of years ago now, and they presented, they were a family that uh, wanted to visit their family in Italy and their nine-monther didn't present with abdominal pain because, again, you know, she can't say she can't That's you know right. say that because yeah. she's nine months. Um, and she presented with constipation, and they were worried that uh, they they wanted to get it sorted before mm. they went to Italy. And I looked at her, and I noticed that she was sitting and not particularly moving very much. And I also noticed that her abdomen looked a bit distended. And I asked the parent whether she crawls, and they said yes. And we could not get this nine-monther to crawl. Nothing that the parent would do would get her to crawl. Right. And she ended up having bilateral Wilms tumours, which is very kind of odd, but it demonstrates the importance of seeing that child move. And when they can't verbalise, that's what you're looking at. Mm, Okay. And you might need to spend some time doing that. And I feel like that's not taught or appreciated, Steve. The time that you need, we're often all working in busy, busy departments. And even if you can't um, observe, you might even just get the parent, you might get the parent to put on a video in the cubicle and actually video their child. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're more likely to move when they're in the comfort with their family rather than people coming in and out. Yeah. And if I can see that child moving well, I am, my my concern about a pathology like appendicitis, like intersusception, goes right down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. After you've taken the history, mm. what's your next step going to be? Like, you know, in terms of things like a physical examination yeah, or something? Yeah, so moving on. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's the examination. And the examination, it's funny that we split it up, history and examination, but the examination actually is observation of the child. Yeah, right. 
So observation would probably be the most important thing in the examination, but we also need to look at the child's abdomen and feel the child's abdomen. And there is skill in this. If the child's now comfortable, say we're dealing with Christine, who's five, I'll just ask Christina to come up onto the bed. I'll watch how she gets up onto the bed. And I'll also say that I need to feel her tummy and could she lift up her top? Yeah. I I always try and get children to lift up their clothing or parents to lift up a child's clothing. And remembering this is very medical school, we need the exposure from the hips just below the rib cage. So I think it's always much more appropriate for a parent to remove or pull down a child's underpants yeah, or absolutely. take off the nappy rather than me. Yeah. And if it's an older child, I'll get them to do it. Once a child is, you know, over three, they often get quite self-conscious about just lying there and having their abdomen looked at. And that can then affect the examination. So what I'm doing is, is that I'm wanting to distract while I'm looking and feeling But the first thing that I'll do in the toddler age group is I'll actually ask the parents if the child's abdomen looks normal to them. Because you know how like a lot of two-year-olds, three-year-olds, they'll have that kind of big, nice pot belly. Yeah. And how can we know whether that's a distended abdomen or just just a normal normal belly? Yeah. And most parents will be able to tell you that. So the first thing I'll do is ask the parent, does your child's abdomen look normal? normal to you. And then next, what I'll do is I'll palpate the child's abdomen. And this is where I'm going to distract if they're a school-age child. And also I'll give them my hand and I'll ask them to feel my hand. Okay. Because we all have different temperatures. Some people have really cold hands, depends on the time of the day. It also then allows the child to know what's happening. So If we go in quickly and without telling a child what we're going to do, Mm. we may get false positives as we we may get voluntary guarding. We may get pain by the mere fact that we've invaded their personal body space. So to be able to get a meaningful examination of a child's abdomen, we need to go slow. We need to prepare them for what we're going to do. If they are looking really worried, I'll do anything that I need to do to show them. I might show them on their teddy. I might even show them on their mother or their father. Yeah. And I might even just do it over their clothing first. Yeah. But I'll always give them my hand and I'll say, whose hand is warmer, your hand or my hand? Right. Yeah. So they, so I'm not jumping in. Yeah. And it's just basic respect for personal body space. Yeah. And also it allows you to get meaningful examination findings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're looking for tenderness, but we're also looking for masses. Well, you know, could there be a mass in this child's abdomen that is causing them to be in pain? So we need to, we need to lay hands, but we've got to be able to feel that child's abdomen. Yeah. So if I can't get near the child, then I will ask the parent to feel the abdomen And often parents will look at you and they're like, well, I don't know what I'm looking for. And I'll say, I'm wanting you to put your hand on your child's tummy to know whether they're worried by you feeling or not. Yeah. And if they're crying when the parent's feeling their abdomen, I'm concerned. Yeah. 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 That makes sense because obviously it's a stranger. Mm. Otherwise it's Mm. it's actually doing it as well. Yeah. 
in, in that heaving emergency department mm. on at 10 o'clock on a yeah. Friday night, how mm. much time would you spend with Christina and her family? Uh, my priority is to get her pain under control and then to establish whether or not I need to do investigations. Yeah. No matter what the department's like, but particularly if it's busy, I want to do that quickly. Yeah. But I also want to do it quickly even if the department's not busy because who wants to be in hospital? So if we're going to talk about investigations now, I see patients that have had all sorts of radiological investigations for children with abdominal pain, Mm. and one in particular that is a little bugbear of mine. Can I guess? Yes. The abdominal x-ray. For constipation specifically. Yes. That's the one that I have a particular uh, bugbear about, I think, uh, because often I just think, well, what's the point of it anyway? But also- I think you're right in general, like the the abdominal X-ray, because it's 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 not a very specific examination uh, when it comes to the abdomen itself. Like yeah. yes, for things like fractures, of course it is, but for for the abdomen and that, it's not a very specific examination. Let's mm. hit the nail on the head. Why do you ask for it? <laughs> Parents want a diagnosis, don't they? Yeah. And this is why at the beginning you said this is an unloved presentation of abdominal yeah. pain. Yeah. And I think. We like things to fit in neat boxes. So once you decide that Christina doesn't have appendicitis and she doesn't have intersusception and she doesn't have pneumonia, she doesn't have a urinary tract infection, then you're kind of like, well, what does she have? And the parents want to know what yeah. she has and you need to give them a treatment plan. You need to give them some uh, hope that she's going to get better and you need to reassure them. The innocent bystander in abdominal pain, in my belief, is constipation. So I think that when clinicians can't quite work out why a child has got abdominal pain and there's no red flag symptoms um, and they've got a normal examination, what do they kind of lean on? They lean on constipation. And I assume, but I assume that one of the questions that you will ask is bowel motion and how often that occurs, right? Yes, yes. So what I want to do is I want to establish, of course, acknowledging that constipation is a very valid and common cause for abdominal pain, but you need a history to back that up. Yeah. And it's helpful if you've got an examination as well, but a child needs to be very constipated to find that on examination. And you certainly don't need an abdominal x-ray to support your findings. And so this is where we have to flip back to the history And this is a fun thing that I actually love. The way that I establish constipation, remember it's not about frequency of poo because we all have different frequencies. So, you know, I poo every day after I have breakfast. That might be like too much information. And, you know, some people poo after every meal and some people poo every three days. It's not about frequency. It's about consistency. Consistency, yeah, right. All about consistency. So I will say to most kids, when you do your poo, do you have to push really hard to get it out? Do you have to, and that's where it can kind of get a bit fun. And I'm not suggesting that everyone has to do the noise, but I kind of find it a bit fun (laughs) because generally if kids are not constipated, they don't need to strain. If they say they don't need to strain to get it out, then I'm generally pretty happy if they're pooing, you know, once every two days. And I'll always get a Bristol stool chart up, um, which is, you know, your stool consistency. If they're straining to get it out, then I'll say, is it really hard 
Yeah. Or is it soft? And yeah. I'll always go to the stool chart. Yeah. And if a child is telling me that they're pooing every day, that they're not straining to get it out and that their poo is kind of nice and soft on the Bristol stool chart, then I have absolutely no reason to, to I have no evidence to suggest that constipation is a cause of their pain pain, and doing an abdominal x-ray isn't going to change anything. (laughs) So I think that abdominal x-rays are for the query constipation or query extent of constipation are used in place of good history taking. That's my opinion. We're not suggesting here that some emergency physicians are inappropriately ordering x-rays, but what we would, particularly even from me as a radiographer, what we would really like is more information mm. on the referral to say why we're actually doing the x-ray in the yeah, first place. because I can imagine it's frustrating on your end. And I think as a clinician, if you are ordering, well, it goes for any test you're ordering, you need to be really clear that you understand the limitations of that x-ray. Yeah. What I noticed, Steve, is that when these kids present with abdominal pain, and sometimes it's been going on for longer than 24 hours, the parents are very keen on investigations. Yeah. And they are often not sufficiently reassured with an explanation, which we'll get to, Yeah. and need investigations to get them over the line. And- I'd like to talk about how we use those investigations appropriately. Yeah. I think. Yeah. To give people a bit of a guide. I want to move away from the from the radiology side of things yeah. and I now want to talk about more of like the, the pathology ones. I mean, we're talking about parents, obviously, you know, you're you're doing tests to help the parents understand a little yeah. bit more and, and it's kind of driving it's being driven a lot a lot by them. What kind of tests are we talking about that you would order? The minimum is urinalysis. Yeah. So any child that presents with abdominal pain has their urine checked. Yeah. I'm wanting to make sure that they don't have a urinary tract infection, but I'm also using my urinalysis to make sure they don't have glycosuria Yeah. because one of the causes of abdominal pain, a new diagnosis of diabetes. Right. Having said that, they tend to be sicker and they tend to have more symptoms like polyuria and polydipsia, but we have had children presenting purely with abdominal pain. And then if they have glycosuria, then I'll go on and check their their blood sugar. So that's my minimum. And for most children, I don't want to do any blood tests at all because it's a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. But I also understand that for many parents, my clinical diagnosis is not enough. Yeah. And if I can't get a parent on board with my diagnosis that I think a child has got functional abdominal pain, which is pain due to the function of the gut rather than a disease process, then I'm really comfortable to do blood tests and I'll do things like a full blood count, um, liver function tests, urea and electrolytes, all to get anticipating that those blood tests are going to be normal Yeah. and to provide the parent with extra reassurance. Yeah, okay. So I'm not opposed to doing blood tests. And sorry to interrupt. And because a lot of people are really purist about this and they say, well, you know, the blood tests and, you know, the pathology is not going to change my management and I've got a child that is going to be distressed and I'm just doing it for the parents and I'm not going to do that. And that's quite a purist approach and I applaud people for not doing tests that they don't think is going to change the management. But sometimes 
we need to acknowledge that parents function differently to us. They're not doctors, they're not clinicians. And sometimes having that normal test is added reassurance for them. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So just to recap, mm. we've, we've taken a thorough history mm. and examination of Christina. Yeah. There are no red flags in the history. Examination is quite reassuring, which mm. is good. But we haven't found a cause for their abdominal pain. And you're talking about now the functional abdominal pain mm. in, the, in, in that that is the most likely cause. Mm. How do you now explain that to the child and family? What I, the first thing I say, and again, I understand this is difficult if you're starting, you're, you're kind of new in, in the job and you haven't done much paediatrics, is I say to them that this is a common thing that I see in children. So I'll talk directly to Christina and I'll say, Christina, I'm so glad that your tummy pain is better. Do you know that I see so many children just like you who have this tummy pain? Yeah. And this is something that lots and lots of kids experience. So the first thing I'm doing is normalising it. And then I'm explaining what's actually causing it. Once I'm clear that that's what the cause is, and I might just rewind a little bit, functional abdominal pain has a specific phenotype or a specific pattern of presentation, just like a tonic-clonic seizure has a particular pattern. Mm or intersusception has a particular pattern of spasmodic pain and pallor and vomiting. Once you see a presentation enough, you start to recognise it. And the pattern is the child that's between probably four to 12, I won't diagnose it in children who are less than four, they get sudden onset of severe pain that's normally peri-umbilical. They'll point to their, to their belly button yeah. when you ask them where their pain is. It's, they're inconsolable. The parent can't get them comfortable. Things like Panadol and Nurofen often don't help and they can be crying for 15 minutes, half an hour, and then eventually they stop crying and the pain resolves and they're kind of back to normal mm. doing everything that they normally did, or they might be a bit quieter. Yeah. They're not vomiting and generally they're eating pretty well. Yeah. And they're afebrile. Yeah. And when they don't have the pain, it's like the parents are going, what just happened? Like they're rubbing their eyes. They're going, how is it that my child was so uncomfortable and now they're not? Yeah. So it's a really specific pattern and it's important as clinicians that we ask for that pattern. So often what I'll say to the parent is, was your child doubled over and holding their abdomen? Did it look like they were in labour? A lot of mothers will say it looks like they were having labour pain, like like that severe colicky, crampy pain. So it's a phenotype or a pattern. Yeah. Then what I'll do is I will normally, and again, I know most people don't do this, but I'll I'll draw a picture. I'll draw a picture of the digestive system for the child and for the parents. And if you're not a drawer, it's absolutely fine to Google image um, a picture of the gut. What I talk about is the normal process of digestion in that we swallow food, the food goes to our stomach. And this is the beautiful thing because children are really interested in how their tummies work. The, the food goes to your tummy and then there are messages that get sent from your brain and your tummy that tell your gut or your intestines, which are one big long sausage, and I'll draw that or show them on a picture, that 
there's food that needs to be moved along and food that needs to be digested. And the way that it moves along our intestine is that there are muscles around our intestine that push the food along. And I'll draw that. And this is called peristalsis. And it depends on how old the child is. If I've got a child that's kind of eight or above, sometimes they want to know what that word is. Sometimes the parents will know Mm. what that word is. Mm. And I'll say, we don't completely understand why children of your age get this pain. But what we think is, is that the body is just doing a little bit too much peristalsis. The body's trying a little bit too hard to push that food along. And when it's trying a little bit too hard, that's when the muscles are pushing a little bit too much and that's what causes your pain. Right. And Steve, the honest thing is, is that no one really understands the pathophysiology of colic abdominal pain of childhood or functional abdominal pain, but that makes physiological sense to me and it tends to make sense to families. And then what I say is that when um, the muscles are digesting a little bit harder than they need to, what happens is, is that we get pain and when we get pain in our tummy, what happens to our tummy muscles? Our tummy muscles will sometimes get really tense and hard because we're in pain. Yeah. And that's often, I think, what the cycle is, is that they'll get this exaggerated peristalsis, which people might feel if they've got, have you ever had diarrhea where you get that really bad cramping before the diarrhea? Yeah. So I think that's what they're feeling. And then they're responding to that, I think, responding to that feeling of cramping with um, abdominal wall muscle tension or holding. And then I think that's what, where the cycle and perhaps that kind of links around. back up to the brain. And the brain's basically saying, "There's pain. There's pain. This yes, is pain. exactly." And yeah. then they're tensing their abdominal muscles, and they're feeling anxious, and then you've got this cycle. Yeah, so it must be a bit frustrating then when the the normal function of the gut is actually really really painful. Yeah, and yes, exactly. And you're not wanting them to think that there's something wrong with their gut. And this is a sophisticated diagnosis to make. So. At this point, and also when I'm teaching our trainees, at this point I will say that if you are junior in your training, I would suggest that you not make this diagnosis without support from a senior clinician. Absolutely, yeah. Because I think you you want to be really well supported by your senior colleague because we're all worried that we're going to miss a serious pathology. Yeah. And by taking this on yourself as a more junior doctor, without the backup of a consultant, I think you're opening yourself up to worry that you shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in a way it must also be particularly frustrating, I guess, for the family as well, because now, yes, you've kind of told them that they've got this functional abdominal pain, mm. but but they don't necessarily have, it's not a, it's not a overly clear diagnosis. Uh, and now they have to take the child home yeah. and the child is going to have pain again. Yeah. And without kind of spelling it out to them, you're basically saying to them, they're going to have pain. They're going to have more pain. It's now just about how you, how you manage that. How can families manage that kind of stuff at mm. home? And it's really hard. I think the first thing is, is sometimes it's really hard to get parents over the line as mm. well. And they'll look at the, the child, you'll draw the picture for the child and the child will be on board. The parents won't be on board. So if the parents aren't on board, I find it difficult to yeah. actually discharge them. Mm. If they are on board, I remind them and I remind the child that the pain always goes at home. Yeah. So did the, did the pain that you had at home, it, it, 
does it does it keep always keep going or does it stop? And I remind them that it stops. Mm. And by virtue of my diagnosis, the pain should be stopping at home because if it doesn't stop, it's not functional abdominal pain. Yeah. So and I re- they should come back. And they should come back. <laughs> yeah. Correct. And we need to revisit the diagnosis. Yeah. So I remind the child that I first make a positive suggestion that some children, once I explain why they have the pain, for some children, that helps them with the pain. Yeah. So right. I'm actually suggesting that maybe there won't be more pain. Yeah. I'm not saying. You're not, not saying there's I'm not, not saying, going through. But I'm making a suggestion. Yeah. But then I'm saying. If this pain comes back to visit, I'll often do things like, could we tell the pain to take a visit to someone else? Or I don't know, I can be a bit silly, but, you know, this isn't for everyone. I'll say, if this pain comes back, these are some of the things that children tell me help them. And what we know is that children like to hear about other children and their experiences. So I'll say some children find it really helpful to have a heat pack. Yeah. Other children find that having mum or dad rub their tummy really helps them. And some kids tell me that they don't want anything on their tummy at all. Yeah. And actually what they want to do is watch a favourite show. Yeah. Or listen to some music or do some drawing. Yeah. And what's really important, Christina, is if you go home and this pain decides to visit again and none of those things help that you know and that mum and dad know that you can come back to hospital and we can give you pain medicine and make you comfortable. So what you're doing is you're scaffolding them and you're also trying to reduce the anxiety that the parents are stuck at home with a child in pain and they don't know what to do. You're leaving that door open. Yeah. Would there be some level of ongoing management plan mm. for the parents at home? So yeah. like things like, I don't know, things like perhaps laxatives or, or mm. deworming or something like that. I, I won't use um, any stool softeners or laxatives unless I've got a clear history of constipation. I will generally give them a time period. So I'll say that the majority of children that have functional abdominal pain will have resolution of symptoms between about five to seven days. Right. I think it's really difficult for GPs to manage this and it's really difficult for parents to deal with a child that's in in pain regularly. And I don't know, a lot of other people may disagree, but I'll say if this is continuing you know, if this hasn't got better in a week, please come back and see us. Yeah. I think it's really rough to ask a GP to deal with this in 15 minutes. There are simple things like, do I suggest worming? I think if a child has had this pain for more than 72 hours, three to five days, and I feel like the parents want to do something, worming for threadworm is a really easy thing to do. Mm. But I'm not really clear whether or not that's going to help, but it's a simple thing. It's a cheap thing. Generally, children, I mean, threadworm can present in lots of unusual ways, but the majority of children that have threadworm will generally have vulval or perianal itch or pain. Right. It tends to be vulval or perianal rather than pure abdominal pain. Yeah, yeah. But I have no problem with suggesting worming. Yeah. Yeah. And then should be the, should there be any 
follow-up for the parents, mm. even if pain resolves? I think if pain resolves, then the answer is no. Yeah. Um, provided that I make clear to the family that this diagnosis of functional abdominal pain is only valid and only our diagnosis if there are none of the red flag symptoms. Yeah. Because probably depending on the literature, it's up to 70% of children who are primary school age will experience this type of pain in their journey through um, primary school. So parents are going to encounter this and may encounter it again. So what I'm wanting to do is be positive and be hopeful that it will settle down, but always remind parents that we're looking at how pain affects their child's function. Of course, we need to listen to what a child tells us about their pain, but we're always wanting to look at function. Yeah. So for the clinicians out there that are listening, Mm. where can they find resources that might help them to learn more or understand more about abdominal pain in children? Always going back to the CPG. Yeah. Yeah. So our CPG on abdominal pain, we'll go through the red flags. We'll go through when we think that it the the pattern fits with with recurrent abdominal pain of childhood or functional abdominal pain. Yeah. I find that there's not a huge amount of literature on functional abdominal pain. And if I am having a problem getting a parent on board with this, I will often um, pull up the Rome criteria, which the gastroenterologists use for functional gut disorders. Okay. And there's a Rome criteria for adults and for paediatrics. And I'll often pull up those criteria and show them where their child fits. And that's easy to to Google. Yeah. Um, and the Rome criteria are basically subsets of functional gut disorders. So there's, you know, a whole list of them and irritable bowel disease fits in that, abdominal migraine fits in that. And that can be helpful for the parent that needs to see things in writing from a reputable source because a lot of the time my drawing to them can not look like it's particularly scientific Mm. and parents come in all shapes and sizes and we need to know how to target each individual parent. Yeah. Because some parents need that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Thanks, Amanda, for joining me today to talk about this. Can you just give me your top three takeaways for people listening? Okay. Um, My first is make the child and the parents comfortable so that you can actually get a meaningful history and examination. Mm -hmm. Second thing is watch how they're moving. And the third thing is be really careful not to blame things on constipation. And, <laughs> and don't children, order x-rays on cons- don't order for, x-rays. for constipation. <laughs> yeah, and don't put children on medication for constipation that they don't need and make parents fork out money to buy Osmolax and Lactulose. So just be meticulous in your diagnosis. And ask a friend if you're not sure. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Look, thanks again, Amanda, for joining me on uh, yet another podcast journey. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat, 
where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting.